This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Please welcome to the stage Blackstone President and Chief Operating Officer Jonathan Gray and Bloomberg's Jason Kelly. I don't know if that tepid applause was for you or for me. That was... Uh. I Sleepy hope it was audience. for you. Yeah, exactly. Certainly for me. Uh, well, thank you for doing this. Always Great nice to be to here. See you at Bloomberg headquarters, just up the street from uh, from your offices. So let's jump right into it. Big, big deal. Thank you for timing it so that we could talk about it today. Eighteen point seven billion, one hundred seventy nine million square feet. If I've got that right, tell us about why this deal. Why now? So. I think this GLP transaction is sort of classic Blackstone, which is invest in scale because when you do bigger things, there tends to be less competition, and invest in a sector where you have really high conviction. So for us, particularly in real estate, logistics has been our high conviction theme for some time. Why? It's based on the simple premise that goods are increasingly moving from physical retail to online retail. And when that happens, the last stop for your shirt or tie is in a warehouse, not a store. So demand for logistics space goes up. And we have now bought over the last nine years close to a billion square feet. It's hard to imagine. In the US, Canada, Australia, across Asia, Europe, all based on this premise. This particular deal was attractive because GLP owned a bunch of what we call last mile logistics, which are warehouses close to population centers. So if you think about it historically, you could have a warehouse in, you know, 100 miles here from New York City, and you'd service the retailer when you needed to and so forth. Now Amazon wants to be at your door an hour or two later. And so you want to be close to the GW bridge. So what's happened here is logistics, particularly last mile, has gone up in importance. And so for us, the opportunity to buy a really high-quality portfolio in one fell swoop was quite interesting. All right. High conviction. You mentioned that. That's going to be a theme, I think, of our entire conversation. How high is your conviction here? Is there another billion square feet to be, to be bought here? You know, it's hard to say. I, I, I think the fundamentals in the U.S. and around the world remain really solid. So if you look in the U.S., vacancy is sub 5% in warehouses, the healthiest sector. Rents have been growing close to 7 8% a year. It's possible. I think it's likely that may moderate a bit, and that's what we've assumed. But this movement of goods online continues. Ten years ago, 5% of apparel was sold online. Today, 20% is. And I think that's likely to continue. And so, yes, I think we'll continue to buy more in the U.S. I actually think the opportunity in Europe may be more compelling because it's earlier in the cycle, and similarly in some of the markets in Asia. So I think this is a theme that we'll continue to invest behind. Global play, as Global you play, for sure. And is this a pure real estate play? Help me understand, help us understand sort of how this plays across the entire Blackstone, Blackstone portfolio. Yeah, it's more than that in the sense we bought in Europe a racking system business that builds racking systems in Europe for warehouses. We bought some online payment businesses. You know, we like to find some of these big themes that we can believe in and then express it across the firm. So, you know, do something in real estate, in infrastructure, in private equity, lend to a space that you like. I think this is a big theme that we can deploy capital globally and across sectors. So if I look over the course of your career and Blackstone over the last 15, 20 years, especially in real estate, I see a couple of these high convictions. Single family homes was post-financial crisis. Hotels, you know, Hilton, Motel 6, et cetera. Is this big, bigger than, uh, as big or bigger than those? Well, it's hard to say. The scale of our business is getting larger, right. so the absolute numbers are bigger. This has clearly been the biggest theme for us. And I would just back up to say we do these big themes because in a world where prices are not so cheap, and obviously that's, I'm sure, been a big theme today, the way you generate outsized returns is identify something you see differently than other people, get a management team who can execute against that, and then go all in. 
And that's been the case for us, let's say, in the warehouse business. You mentioned single-family housing mm. in the U.S., Spanish housing, Indian office buildings. Find some things you really believe in and try to make a difference. And what I've seen when I look back over time is you tend to spend a lot of time talking about whether I pay 98 or 100 for an asset. But when you look back in the rearview mirror five or seven years later, that's not what really matters. What matters is, was this the right business asset? Was it in the right sector? Did I have the right people running it? And if you get those things right, those small increments don't really matter. And so concentrating on things you really believe in, I think that's quite important if you want to outperform. You mentioned competition at the beginning of your answer, and yet there is a little more competition now. There was competition for this deal, yes, reportedly. Sure. Uh, How's the competitive landscape for you right now? Because, yes, you have distanced yourself from a lot of the traditional players, but Brookfield, to name yeah. one, uh, is there certainly in the real estate uh, yeah. infrastructure business. How competitive is it out there for deals? Well, I would say across Blackstone, in every field, there's competition. There, there are some markets with less competition than others. But I would say, if I think about it, um, in general, we're operating at a scale where the air is a little bit thinner. So in private equity, if we're managing $25 billion funds, there's a handful of people who can write multi-billion dollar checks. Similarly, certainly in real estate, even a smaller number. Um, Infrastructure is another area where there's a small number who can write really big checks. In the credit world, same story. Our hedge fund solutions business, our secondaries business. It's funny, in the public markets, if you want to buy a million dollars of stock and I want to buy a hundred million, you've got the competitive advantage. In the private markets, being the, the one person who can provide the solution is a real advantage. So scale is better. Mm -hmm. So we saw that certainly in this case. Uh, we saw it in the case of GE Real Estate. We saw it in the Thomson Reuters deal in our private equity business last year. So we continue to find that scale works for us. Plus, you're able to attract great talent to run these businesses. You're able to be very efficient. And I do think the scale we operate on is one of the reasons why our returns have consistently outperformed almost every metric. And I think that's maybe something people underappreciate. All right. Staying on the news just for a, a minute, and then I want to get into a little bit of your investing philosophy. On the news, China trade, Mexico trade, tariffs, Huawei, tech sell-off, you name it. How is that playing through your portfolio? How concerned are you from a macro level and from a micro level yeah. in your portfolio about that? So we don't have a ton of businesses in the global supply chain. We certainly have some, and they are being impacted by this. And I would say, um, so that's an, that's an issue. I think the broader issue is what it means for markets, what it means for confidence, and what it means for economic growth. And obviously, if this persists, um, we're going to see less economic growth. We're going to see more uncertainty. Markets logically have traded off. That makes sense. Um, so I think as investors, you have to be uh, mindful of that. And also, I would say sometimes you don't necessarily think through all the multiple impacts of these things as they play through a lot of industries. So I think it makes you generally a little more cautious. Now, the bond market has moved much more cautious. Right. Um, with a 10-year now two and European yields quite negative. Um, U.S. growth is still okay, although we're waiting to see the impact here. So how I, soon do you think we'll see the impact? Is it the next quarter? Is it this year? I think it's this year. I think you'll see it incrementally. There are definitely companies today who are trying to move their supply chains. That has an impact. And you're making companies, if you think about what drives economic growth, this is one of the challenges about Brexit is, if people have confidence that tomorrow things will be better, then they'll make capital expenditures or hiring decisions based on that confidence. If they feel very uncertain about the future, they tend to pull back. And I do think the tax cut last year was helpful in building confidence. Um, and I think now there's um, more wariness in terms of what's going on. And I will say this, I still think as it relates to US and China on trade, ultimately, I think there should be a resolution because it's in both parties' interest. There's a recognition of a rebalancing that should be taking place. This is really about the pace and extent of that rebalancing. 
I do think the technology side of this is harder to resolve. Right. And we may end up in sort of a bipolar technology world. Well, and to that exact point, I mean, rebalancing is one thing. It feels like, at least on the tech side, we're looking at decoupling in a lot of ways, these two economies. You work at a place, your boss, Steve Schwartzman, intimately involved in, in China. He's a confidant of the leaders of both uh, countries, U.S. and China. How worried are you about that sort of decoupling? How worried is the firm? Well, as I said, I think the firm, obviously, everyone recognizes in the near t term the parties have moved apart, and, and I think everybody's disappointed that's occurred. But I think there is a sense that, again, it's in the collective yeah. interest of both parties to come back together. That's why I think on, in terms of trade and reciprocal openness of markets, I think progress ultimately will be made. I, I think the technology thing is just tougher. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about a year or so uh, into this new job. You're running real estate. Now you've got a much broader remit as the president and COO. What do you feel like is the biggest impact so far you've made on the firm from a cultural perspective? You're a guy who grew up at the firm. Uh, take us inside year one. Yeah. Well, I did this office spoof video at the end of the Christmas yeah. season last year, and that got a very big hit rate. So that may be my big thing. Um, <laughs> I would say... So holiday card check. Holiday but, yeah. card check. Right. Um, I think, you know, the biggest impact, I'd say in two areas, I've really been focused on it. And I'd start by saying that my predecessor, Tony James, had done an amazing job. So this was not, and, and Steve Schwarzman, there was not a need here to do a lot of course correction. Um, I'd say the two areas I've focused a lot on have been integration, which is we have large businesses in private equity and real estate and credit and hedge funds and secondaries and infrastructure. But at times, we didn't always get the best out of all of them. We collect a lot of data from our companies. We can share a lot of that data, which will make us better investors. If you think about investing as pattern recognition, connecting dots, as maybe the largest owner of assets in the world, there are a lot of dots we can connect. So doing a better job in that area. When we see investment opportunities in one group that doesn't fit its mandate, making sure we share that with another group who may have the right capital. Um, when we go out and see our customers, our clients, making sure we understand we're not just working for one business unit, the whole firm, our support services being the best at everything we do and in integrating that. So integration, I would say, is one big theme. And then the second thing is um, maybe a little bit more of a push towards growth. Yeah. And when I talk about growth, I do it in the context of what makes asset prices go up. What makes them go up is either multiple expansion or cash flow growth. And multiples, for the most part, are pretty high for most assets. So what you need is growth. How are you going to find that? It makes you want to do more in Asia. We raised a second opportunistic real estate fund, our first Asia private equity fund. It makes you want to look at things like life sciences. We bought this business, Claris, uh, which we now renamed Blackstone Life Sciences, with an intense focus on phase three trials. There's a huge need of capital in that space. Uh, we hired a very senior individual in the growth equity space, again, with the idea of building up in that area. And then across our firm, it could be in credit, private equity, real estate, making sure we're looking at the impact of technology in everything we do, mm -hmm. because that's a major risk, but also a major opportunity. So trying to focus a little more on that across the whole firm. You know, I was interested a, a couple weeks ago that you were the commencement speaker at Wharton, your, your alma mater. And I do wonder, as you get into this job, and giving a speech like that is always a time of reflection. Yeah. I got a chance to, to read it and watch it. I mean, what was the animating principle that you sort of looked at from there that you apply today? I think the animating principle was that things don't always go perfectly in any way, shape, or form. Um, that when I think about my own life growing up in suburban Chicago and all the things that sort of went wrong, which is what I talked about in the speech, sitting on the bench on a 1-in-23 basketball team, not necessarily being the best with the ladies, um, <laughs> you know, ha having some failed investments earlier in my career, that those things teach you a lot. And, and you can learn from those. I sort of describe them as hidden gifts. And that those hidden gifts 
if, if, if you learn them, you can transform them to make yourself a better person, make yourself a better investor. And that has definitely been the case, that seeing the down cycle, seeing the ability to hold on to great assets that ultimately recovered in value, really important. You know, meeting my wife and realizing, hey, I may not get another shot like this, I should hold really tight, <laughs> really important. And so I think for me, that has been formative. And as you know, in the investment business, things often go wrong. And if you don't have an ability to have some resilience, some optimism, I think it's a really tough business. So when you say the word hidden, it's hard to think about private equity being hidden at this point in a firm like Blackstone. How much do you worry at this point about the geopolitics, the reputational risk, all these different things? It feels like something, having watched you for quite some time in this business, that you very much take to heart. How much do you worry about that right now? The size, the scope of the industry, the size, the scope of Blackstone. Well, I'd say there are a lot of things you worry about, and, and clearly the geopolitical is creating more of a challenge. You know, historically, um, business and politics intersected, but I'd say more infrequently. And today, um, it could be trade wars, it could be rent control initiatives in our real estate business, it could be um, issues around energy and environmental impact. You, you can't sort of be closed off to that. And we've chosen as a firm to be highly engaged and aware of what's going on because it has a, such a big impact on our investors. I, I would say more broadly, you know, for us, I think the most important thing is we have to constantly remember and focus on delivering great returns for our investors. That's the most important thing. And that's what's allowed the business to grow. That's allowed us the last two years and this year to raise more than $100 billion. Steve Schwarzman had a line at one of our investor days where he said, we're like a restaurant. If we serve good food, our customers will come back. They'll try other items. We can expand. And so for us, first and foremost, delivering great returns is what matters. And getting at that is, is about really, in my mind, two fundamental things. One is having incredibly talented people who are driven, creative, care a lot, good human beings, all of that, and are encouraged to take risks to go out and look at telecom infrastructure in Latin America, get on airplanes, find things. And then overlaying against that a superstructure, an investment process that takes into account political risk, regulatory risk, technological disintermediation, rising interest rates, rising labor costs, and is very centralized in that decision-making process. And when I think about the business, we have to get both of those things right. If you, if you don't allow creative energy, you don't encourage it, you're not going to find interesting things that generate returns. On the other hand, if it's sort of the Wild West, you're not going to have the discipline that knocks out things where you have bad governance or there's too much risk. The, the person on the deal team isn't seeing the big picture. And so I would say sort of overlooking all of that is essential. And when mm -hmm. I think about the role is making sure we've got great talent on the field, encouraged, meritocracy but also making sure we're very protective of our investors' capital. More political risk coming, you think? We got a presidential election you may not be aware of. I, you know, I think, I think this is now the status quo. I think what's underlying a lot of this is technology is transforming um, so many industries, creating so much dislocation. And so it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. So I would anticipate that politics will continue to play a big role. Year two in this job, what's your biggest uh, priority? Um, I'd say two things. One is being very mindful and cautious as we deploy capital. It, it is even More cautious this year than you were last year, you think? Um, similarly, but just being mindful. We're, we're, we're obviously, like everyone's commented, getting deeper into a cycle. But then the second thing is, as we expand, back to my earlier comments, that we're, we're staying true to sort of our values, that our process, if we create a new business in infrastructure, life sciences, growth, that, that it's hooked into Blackstone, mm -hmm. that we don't have any sort of free-floating molecules, um, and so that we manage this growth in the most thoughtful way possible. Because I think there are enormous advantages from the scale we, we've created. On the flip side, if, if we're not mindful, that's how we get in trouble. So. I would say the biggest priority 
is to make sure we manage this growth in a really thoughtful way and deliver the customers showing up for these new um, products right. as great an experience as what we've done in our historic products. So let's finish up in the last minute that we have where we started high conviction clearly around this deal that you announced yesterday. Where's your next highest conviction as you look across the firm or as you yeah. look across the opportunity set? I'd throw out a couple. Um, you know, even though a lot of things are happening virtually, human beings still exist. And so live entertainment, meetings, conventions, resort hotels, we've made a huge push, gaming. Human beings still want to get together and have fun. So we've done a lot of that in a bunch of different areas. I think the shale revolution is very powerful here in the United States. It's powerful in that maybe it will hold down energy prices, um, certainly, but it means volumes will be much higher. So owning midstream assets, financing them, owning them in infrastructure, creating them in our energy business, I think that's really powerful. I think geographically, India has a long runway. I think mm. we're in the early stages. I think the Modi election was very powerful. I would say the UK is interesting just because it is so, um, so much negative perception around it. And so I think it offers some interesting opportunities. So it's a big world. There are still plenty of things to do. I know at conferences like this, people can get negative, but you've got to constantly keep looking. Right. Well, on behalf of the human beings here, we really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Thanks everybody. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Tuesday. Carol Masser, along with my co-host, Jason Kelly. We are live from Bloomberg headquarters and the Bloomberg Live Invest New York conference. Jason Kelly just finishing off that uh, great interview with Blackstone President and CEO John Gray, and he's joining us now. And now we have a guest, Greg Fleming, also part of the conference, President and CEO at Rockefeller Capital Management, joining us. Eric, talking about the wealth management business. Things have changed. There's more competitors. Retail now surpassing institutional investors that are out there, what do you have to do to stay nimble and make sure that you, know, you are bringing in new clients five years from now, 10 years from now? Well, at Rockefeller uh, Capital Management, we're focused on high-end clients, right? families that have significant resources. So that's a smaller part of the wealth management business. Uh, we like to think that we occupy a really unique space between big firms that struggle to bring high-touch, very focused resources and small firms that don't have a, uh, a brand like Rockefeller and that don't have the, the breadth and the quality of the leadership team that I've been able to put in place. So uh, we think that um, we ought to be able to grow our business nicely with existing clients and new clients over the next five, 10 years. Let's talk about that brand because there are a few names that sort of make you sit up and pay attention. And Rockefeller, maybe I'm a little biased living here in New York, actually living uh, in Westchester County, just adjacent to uh, so much of the Rockefeller uh, property. I run in their park all the time, so thanks. But please give my thanks to them for that. Um, <laughs> but it is interesting to use that as sort of a, an organizing principle. And, and I wonder what types of families sort of come to you uh, owing to that? Can, can you generalize sort of the, the types of clients that, that you're dealing with? Yeah, successful families, Jason, across the country. It's really remarkable, this name. Yeah. Uh, which you know, we really feel privileged to operate with that name because it, it resonates in a very positive way. Uh, the family's been focused on philanthropy, on sustainable investing, on things that people admire. Uh, they're, they're known as a, as a principal family. You know, we had the David Rockefeller Sr., we had the auction of all the items he left to all these museums. So because of that, on a national basis, people respond positively to the name the same way you do. Well, they were kind of doing all that stuff before it was cool. And so, I mean, they, yes. they sort of did that for a long time. Yeah, they actually, impact investing, the phrase, came from one of the Rockefeller entities. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we just opened an office in San Francisco and, and are building our, our presence out there, given all of what's going on from a wealth standpoint in technology. And people asked us, would the Rockefeller name translate to first-generation technology wealth on the West Coast? Absolutely. Interesting. You know, families react really well uh, to being part of a firm that has taken care of the Rockefellers for generations. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because that, that new generation of wealth, I, I'm interested to understand what are their priorities maybe versus other families who have made their wealth, their fortunes in more traditional ways. It, they tend to be younger, I, I feel like, and so that may uh, change the, the time horizon. Are there other things that characterize 
how they think about their money? Uh, uh, and this is very different, uh, I think, than a generation or two ago. They're very focused on, on making sure that they do things that are good for the world with mm -hmm. that money. And, and that's why ESG investing, in our eyes, is a very significant growth business. Millennials and Generation Z are going to focus on uh, you know, investing in ways that are good for the world. So there's a, there's a, it's the same thing with, uh, if you went back a, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, companies were at that time supposed to focus on shareholder value. Right. Now there's a broader set of interests that you know, the leadership of companies, including public companies, are supposed to incorporate. So when you look at younger investors and, and, you, and people who've made money who are in the, in the millennial or even the, the Generation Z coming up behind it, they want to see good things happen with that money. They want to see it invested in ways that are sensitive to climate change, which you know these generations believe is a major issue for uh, the United States and around the world. Well, I do think about those families that have money for generation after generation after generation. The younger generation, are you having to adapt to making sure that they're not moving their money elsewhere, especially when you have so many fintech startups. You have Amazon, who's just, you know, everybody's waiting to see what they might do in the financial area. So I just, I'm curious about ensuring that that family wealth says, hey, we've been there for generations, we want to stay there, versus a younger generation coming up and saying, yeah, I might know the Rockefeller name, but I don't feel the allegiance to it that maybe my dad or my grandfather did. That's a great question. And actually, we do have to work for that. And there are things that they're looking for that we have to deliver that might not have been the same for their parents or their grandparents. Digital uh, capabilities is a good example of that. Younger investors and younger people want to be able to communicate with uh, their client advisor, uh, you know, on the on the uh, whenever the, they the want, whenever they want, and <laughs> whatever the way they they want to get their information differently. They they want to receive it on their on their on their phones and on their devices. So you you do have to adapt to the younger generation and the way that they want to interface with uh, the client advisor and the private wealth advisor. So that's absolutely something. And, and we use the word digital. They are very digitally friendly. I, I have three uh, uh, millennials, Generation Z myself, that mm. I've been raising that are in the 20-ish range. They do everything with the, uh, with the device and with the, the, the digital technology. We've got to be very responsive to that. And we've got to bring the information and the interface to them in ways that they want. Greg, I'm also curious how much they're already involved. You know, maybe you're really dealing with their parents right now or something, but I'm just curious how much that younger generation is getting involved in saying, hey, we want some say in terms of where assets are being allocated. You know, in, in, in all families, they start to bring in the younger generation, you know, relatively early because they're... As teenagers? I'm always well, curious. Well, you know, teenagers, you're careful about the dialogue, but, we, you know, we, we counsel clients on how to talk about money and, and when you start bringing them, them into the, the dialogue. But families that have had money for generations know that they have to start educating the younger generation on, uh, on money and how it's been transferred and the, uh, the things that have been done in, in uh, prior generations to make sure there's still money there for them. So there is a dialogue around that, and they are brought in uh, relatively early. Uh, last question for you, Greg. You know, as you think about these types of investors, it does feel like they are investing directly more often. The family office, as it, as it was largely construed, it feels like for a long time, was more of a passive, like, I'm going to allocate some money here and there. They really want to get in it. They want to be involved, not just in the selection, but oftentimes in the operating of the companies. How does that change your role? How does that change the way you build your team? We, we need to, it doesn't change the substance of what we do every day. And, and I've been fortunate, we've been fortunate to put in place a experience high-quality uh, team that, that's been around the wealth management business across Wall Street for literally decades. So we still do what we, we need to do, Jason, to drive the business day-to-day, -day. but we, we do, uh, we are responsive to, uh, you know, clients and younger generation and involvement that they want to have. So we have, for example, a next-gen advisory council mm. where we have, you know, uh, millennials and younger generation who talk to us about issues that are important to them both as clients and as, uh, as uh, you know, the younger generation. And we meet with that advisory council on a regular basis and get their input. I almost feel like it has to be more of a lifestyle for younger generation, right? In terms yeah. of bringing yeah. in all of their needs financially and other. It, I don't know if that's true. I think it is true. Yeah. I, I think it's the same thing with work. You know, a generation or two ago, people would go to one company and yeah. they might work there for 30 or 40, 50 years. 
and these generations are, are much less focused on that. And as they grow, they want to have a different opportunity. With wealth, they want to see it do well in the world, not right. just have it available. It's a, you know, these genera you know, generations are, they're categorized for a reason. They are different. What a great, great chance to catch up with you. Greg Fleming, President and CEO at Rockefeller Capital Management. Thank you so much for stopping by, for joining us for Bloomberg Invest. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So the summer season almost upon us. Time to check in, we thought, maybe with the hospitality industry. Patrick Pacius is with us. Pat Pacius. He is president and CEO of Choice Hotels based in Rockville, Maryland, on site with us at our Bloomberg Live Invest New York conference here on the sixth floor. Just a little noisy. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. It's like we a nice it. hotel lobby. Exactly. You know, it's like <laughs> people, people coming, coming and going. going. Exactly. Actually, I kidded to Charlie Vollmer, our head of technical operations. I'm like, we're kind of like a hotel concierge yeah, counter right exactly. here. Please, can I help you get something? <laughs> what would you like. So tell us, how are things looking? Things are great. You know, you look at consumer confidence. Don't you guys always it's say high. it's great? It is, but you know, it's 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 a it's a really booming economy right now, particularly for booming. our type of traveler. Booming. Absolutely. Consumer confidence is high, unemployment is low, gas prices are low. It's a great time to be out traveling. Um, and if you look at our business, that mid-scale traveler, um, we are, you know, that's who our, our main, main, main customer is. And we've taken our biggest brand, Comfort Inn, um, and have completely renovated it. The lobbies were all done last year. We're halfway through the room, so a lot of the uh, product has been refreshed. Right. We have a new logo that's rolled out, so you'll see the new Comfort Inn signs uh, as you're driving down the highway and on our buildings and on our hotels. And we're rolling out a new ad campaign here in about two weeks that will reintroduce comfort to the American traveler, both the leisure traveler and the corporate traveler who stays with us in the, mid in the middle of the week. And talk to us about the uh, the Cambria, Cambria brand. Excuse me. Um, you've invested pretty heavily in that. A little more upscale. Do I That's have right. that right? Yeah. Um, so talk to us about the, the customer there and sort of how that fits fits into the portfolio. So we knew our customer when they were traveling for business. They were moving to upper scale product. Yeah. Um, that's a, a higher corporate market. Um, but that upscale business traveler today wants a local feel. So when they walk into our Cambria hotels, you're going to see an open lobby. You're going to see craft beer at the bar that's from the local uh, market. And we know we're after that time-starved business traveler where minutes are important. You know, if you can do a text message or you're running quick, you know, you want to know when you walk into that hotel, where is everything? Can I see where the elevators are, the check-in desk, the bar? Um, and the fitness center. And so we're really opening our spaces up so that when you walk into the hotel, you're not having to ask somebody, where is everything? It's right there in front I've of you. I've got to tell you, I'm still stuck at you saying booming because we keep doing stories that like it's subpar growth in the economy. You know, the Fed is now considering potentially, or the talk is, you know, maybe a couple of rate cuts because things are kind of coming undone. The U.S.-China trade is certainly um, unsettling investors as well as corporate America. They're concerned about making decisions, thinking about moving supply chains. Booming like going back to when? Like what does this environment remind you of? So the industry is at all-time record occupancy levels. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing rate increases as well. So from the standpoint of and consumer demand. And you're spending demand, money to do upgrades, so you've got the money to do yeah, it. Yeah, so absolutely. So it's, you know, I think we've been, it's 110 straight months now of Rev Park gains. So we're in yeah. sort of a record territory here with regard to how long this lodging cycle has been moving in a positive Similar direction. Similar to the economic cycle. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think everybody is saying, okay, well, growth is a little bit slower than last year. But it's growth off of record levels. So from the standpoint of comparing where we are today relative to the late 90s was probably when we had this much um, travel going on. Um, it's, it's a pretty uh, high, high point for the marketplace. Wow. And so what would give you pause? Is it this trade war sort of deepening and companies starting to cut back a little bit? Where will you see the first signs of a little bit of softness? Where will that come in either across your brands or geographically? So we're not seeing any impact from the trade uh, yep. situation right now. 
most of our markets that we're in, whether it's the U.S. or the 39 other countries, those are domestic travelers. So we don't rely on that long-haul business traveler who's coming into the gateway city. We rely on people in the country, and particularly here in the U.S. where 90% of our inventory is. Um, those are travelers who are not concerned about you know, getting across a border to, to actually travel either for business or for, mm-hmm. for, for leisure. So where, you th- where I think you'll see it is usually you see supply exceed demand. Right. And right now you're at a happy medium of about just shy of 2% supply growth. And demand is about just north of 2%. So it's, it hasn't sort of tilted the other way. Right. Those are usually the signals that you're going to see a downturn for a period of time. So as you think about expansion domestically here in the U.S., what are the regions you're interested in? Where do you go to essentially uh, that, that would mirror kind of that, that coming demand? What parts of the country or, or some locations? So for us, we're very strong in the southeast. Yep. We're very strong in Florida and Texas. Um, where we are underpenetrated today is on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So we have a significant amount of our development pipeline, new hotels coming um, to the West Coast, California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, uh, those states. And when you look at RevPAR gains over the last several quarters, the West has had the strongest regional growth from the standpoint of, of growth. So in terms of spending on other you know, parts within the business, are you thinking about there are other CapEx expenditures that you guys are planning? We've invested a lot in technology. Yeah. Um, we're the first hotel company to natively build our reservation system on the Amazon cloud. Uh, wow. We launched that last year. Uh, we've invested a lot in big data, and we've been an early investor in mobile. When you put cloud computing, big data, and mobile together, we're finally going to be able, I think, to realize personalization. So not only what that traveler wants, but when you can geolocate them and hook that up to an offer engine that gives them something they're asking for, all those technologies are finally coming together. So the big data, is that where that comes Absolutely. into? So tell me that how do you balance the creepiness of, <laughs> we know where you are, do you need a hotel, versus, wow, they know where I am, I need a hotel. How convenient is that? Well, we start with our owners, the hotel owners. So if you own a hotel, let's say in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and Wednesday night it says, oh, it's going to be stormy this weekend, all of a sudden those hotels start to um, open up. The occupancy goes down. So if you can look at weather as a piece of data and help our owners say, well, then let's throw a promotion out there. Let's let's uh, offer some new ways of getting travelers to come into play. Or you get a snowstorm on the other side where people are, are stuck in, in right. one area. Um, when we talk about big data, it's not just personal information. It's consumer trends. Right. It's weather. It's other economic data that can help our owners uh, get a higher ROI out of their properties. Fascinating. And when yeah. you've looked at that data across the universe, sort of across your portfolio, what have you learned that surprised you? Either about you know, what people are asking for, what they want, their habits, their movements, anything jump to mind that you've sort of seen in that data? What's interesting is we've, uh, we've seen a lot of guests who don't want all the frills. Um, you know, when they walk past some of these full-service upscale hotels and they see the koi pond in the lobby, they're saying, I don't want to pay for that. We bought a brand last year. You know, year. we have a koi pond just I over s- there. I saw your koi <laughs> pond. <laughs> I'm not going to be sensitive about it, but that's okay. We bought a brand last year called Woodspring Suites. Yeah. It's an yeah, economy extended that. stay brand, and that's a brand where your room only gets cleaned every two weeks, wow. and that's what the customer wants. They don't want to pay for daily room cleaning. Right. Um, they don't want a daily breakfast. They have a kitchenette in their room, and they can uh, they can cook for themselves. So it's about providing the guests what they're looking for, and we're seeing more and more guests who want to do it themselves as opposed to have the hotel provide it for them. So what I, keeps you up at what? What were you going to say? Well, I have to say, like, you know, traveling as a family, like, during the summer and things like that to, like, lacrosse tournaments. Like, oh, yes. I've done l- a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we love those, you know, sort of, like, sweet type hotels. And I do feel like people are gravitating more and more to just, like, I want a little more space. Especially for families. And I want you to not leave me alone, but leave me alone. You yeah. know, like, I got this. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, keeps you up at night. Just got about 30 seconds. Um, it's it's probably labor. Um, uh. This is an industry that has about a million open jobs. We don't manage hotels. We're a pure play franchiser. Yeah. But our franchisees are having a, a tougher time in finding talent uh, to staff their hotels. So wages that's going it. With, up. With wages going up and yeah. unemployment and as low as it is, um, it's becoming a little bit more challenging for them to find uh, folks to work in the hotels. Pat Patius, uh, really great to catch up with you. President and CEO of Choice Hotels based down in Rockville, Maryland, here with us at Bloomberg headquarters in New York today. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Tuesday, live from Bloomberg Live's Invest New York conference here at Bloomberg World Headquarters. We were just talking a lot about the bond market and what we heard from Fed Chairman Jay Powell. Perfect guest to continue that conversation. Katie Kaminsky is Chief Research Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Alpha Simplex Group, based in Boston, on site with us here at Bloomberg World Headquarters. She's going to participate in a panel. It's appropriate in terms of the name. Global yields, will they ever really rise? I feel like, Katie, first of all, welcome. Nice to have you here. Great to be here. And I do feel like this is a conversation or question that we had two years ago, three years ago, and here we are in 2019 still having the conversation. And I know we are talking with some of our team here about slow growth is going to continue. So I do wonder what this means for the bond market. Well, honestly, it's a really exciting day to be talking about rates today because yeah. of what Powell said. But did he say he he will cut rates? Because no, he didn't he, actually. He didn't say that. He said that the Fed will act appropriately uh, based on what happens. And for us, it's interesting because we didn't see a reaction in yields today to that. We saw the stock market move. Right. Um, but we've seen massive moves um, in fixed income over the last couple of months, even on the longer end of the curve. And it's been a tremendous upward move in bond prices. Right. And people are asking me, oh, when is this going to revert? And I'm saying there's so many forces out there that are fighting against that ever happening. Two reasons. One, there's reversion to the mean. The U.S. had been doing much better than the rest of the world in terms of global growth and, and, other, and the dollar also being stronger. But what we've also seen is that that seems to be putting some pressure on us to behave more like the rest of the world. That's going to put some pressure on bonds as well because we have a higher yield than a lot of the other global economies. Secondly, this flight to safety trade yeah. has become extremely powerful this year, and we can feel it on a daily basis. We'll see stocks go down. We'll see bonds go up. And recently, we've seen the dollar go up as well. But this week, we've seen the opposite. We've seen actually the dollar go down while bonds went up and stocks Which makes down. more sense, right? Yes. In a lower rate environment to see the dollar also see some pressure. And so what do you think will happen with rates Well, I for think the rest of the year? To, to be honest, there's not a lot of indications that rates will go up. Um, if anything, there seems to be some pressure that they may stay where they are or even be pushed further, depending on how the economic situation deteriorates. We're seeing a couple of negative indications of res- recessionary mm-hmm. forces. And that, um, as a quant, somebody who measures the markets, mm-hmm. um, objectively, that, that's a little frightening. But um, economics can look a little bit different. So it's, it's a little bit unclear. You went right where I wanted to go because here we are getting ready to almost celebrate, what, the 10th anniversary of the longest economic or, or record. If we go, I think, into July, right, we'll surpass it and become the record, the longest expansion uh, since we started keeping records. So what has changed dramatically kind of in how we see inflation, how we see the economy, how we see growth? What's, what's changed? Is it different? I mean, I think... The interest rate environment is a big part of that, is that that's helped us to prolong uh, this particular environment longer. Um, The question is just how long? Yeah. I mean, I think I've been saying that for five years, you know, and you might laugh at that, but. No, no. (laughs) We've been asking the question saying, okay, this is going to every December, January, say, well, this is going to be the year that the Fed is going to be more aggressive. And, and unfortunately, there's just a lot of pressure on them right now. And if you think about where other global economies are looking at their interest rates, they, they, they can't be that different. If right. they why why that is that? Because I thought at some point we said, okay, there's going to be differences, okay? The U.S. economy is better, so we'll see a different rate trajectory versus what we're seeing, I don't know, in Europe or elsewhere or Japan or whatever. Well, we, we actually saw that last year. Yeah. Um, we saw a lot of short um, signals in bonds that were very, very good last year. But that all changed in Q4. Because what happened was is that, you know, it became clear that the U.S. was moving so far to sink. And if you think about the dollar being strong, that also makes U.S. bonds extremely attractive. Um, so if we yeah. have a yield that's 2 or 3% and you have negative yields in the bund, Suddenly, the U.S. dollar has become a positive uh, currency carry uh, trade. And that's something we haven't seen in some time. So that puts also pressure on on U.S. bonds. So if we behave too differently, there's going to be a lot of pressure for us to revert to the mean. Um, And I think that is one of the natural forces that kind of as we have a global economy where there's a lot of flow between different 
regions across the world, that right. that's a bec- becomes an important factor. So 30 seconds, uh, you're going to go upstairs and participate in this panel. For those of us who aren't going to be lucky enough to be sitting in the room, what's the big takeaway they're going to get from your comments? First of all, I'd say that we've seen strength in bonds, and I don't see a lot of indications that that's going to change. Uh, the Fed spoke today, and it seems to have already been priced into rates. Yeah. So, so will they ever really rise? <laughs> Which I, is the question. I don't p- know. Um, someday. <laughs> someday. Let's, uh, let's hope someday. Right. Because uh, <laughs> we've been looking for that for a long time. It's an amazing environment that we're living in. Um, Katie, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Katie Kaminsky. She's Chief Research Strategist and Portfolio Manager at the Boston-based Alpha Simplex Group. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Come here. Here we go. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday. Catherine Keating is back with us. She's CEO at BNY Mellon Wealth Management on site with us at Bloomberg Live Invest New York here at Bloomberg World Headquarters. So nice to have you back here with us. Great to be here. Great to be here. It's such an interesting environment. And I I do wonder, you know, and we've talked about this before, when you look at the macro environment, Mm -hmm. you know, here we've got a rally in stocks today with Jay Powell coming out from Mm -hmm. the Fed. How do you make sense of it? What do you listen to? Where do you take your cues from? So um, we look at all the news that everybody else does, but we actually believe in uh, Benjamin Graham. You know, in the short term, the market's a voting machine, and in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And so we try to get to the things that we're really weighing. Um, And obviously, we're focused on trade, as everybody is. We're focused on treasuries and the Fed and the yield curve, as everybody is. Uh, But we're also focused on the long-term trends. And the long-term trends right now, or at least for the medium term, are that it feels like the economy is growing enough and central banks are patient enough and consumers are confident enough and the employment market is strong enough in this country that we think we can see this rally continuing. Now, we have some big issues to deal with, right. um, uh, you know, geopolitically, but, you know, the underlying fundamentals here, you know, can, could continue to propel um, the economic expansion and, and a good stock market. So when we think about the stock market, we think of all these public companies, but the fact of the matter is, is there are fewer of them these days. So much has shifted to the private markets. We've seen a couple big unicorns go public, and yet this macro trend of the private markets really growing while the public markets are greeted with, shall we say, some skepticism continues. What are the implications of that for your business, for your customers, and how you think about deploying money? Well, you're absolutely right that we've seen an explosion of um, private equity-backed companies to the point where there are more of those in the U.S. today than there are public companies. So you're absolutely right. And if we look at our clients and and, um, their portfolios, our clients tend to be relatively comfortable in private markets because Hmm. it's probably where they made their wealth. They were probably a family that founded a a business at some point. Maybe they took it public. Um, and they tend to be comfortable in private markets. And so we, we think private markets are really important accelerators in a portfolio, but you have to be selective. And if we look at the you know, private equity industry and the fact that a trillion seven has been raised you know, just in the last two years, and we look at the you know, buyout, U.S. buyout multiple at the end of last year of 11 times, entry points matter. Yeah. And so we would tend to look to the smaller companies, you know, the lower middle market, and again, that's an area where our clients are oftentimes comfortable because their company may have been one of those right. sorts of companies, right? right? So we're very focused on that segment. So, and this goes back to actually a conversation that you and I had on stage at the, at the Milken conference a couple months ago with some of your colleagues at uh, some, firm, some competitive firms, candidly. And, and we talked a lot about sort of what the implications are for the broader base of investors that who don't have maybe the access that some of your clients have, especially your wealthier clients. What are the implications of so many of these companies being in private hands versus 
public hands, and how does that change the nature of capital markets, not to be too grandiose about it? Well, um, I think the big fundamental um, issue here is that we are advising the first generation of Americans that's largely responsible for their own retirement. Yeah, so if you think about our parents, um, they probably either worked at a major company or maybe a public entity for you know, 30, 40 years and you know, retired with a mm-hmm. defined benefit pension. That's not the case anymore. And the reason we focus on this so much is that you think about the asset allocation of that defined benefit pension plan, it probably had a lot of access to private markets and that helped returns over time. So it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important that as we advise people who are now their own chief investment officer, their own pension plan, um, that, that, that we get them access to the same kinds of um, investments and returns. Are we seeing, though, the traditional corporate-based 401k plans starting to embrace more of the private markets? Well, it's in the, that's a different issue that the um, 401k plans have to be liquid. They have, right? Okay. Well, think about it because people can come and go. Right, they can right. change their asset allocation. So there may, there may be some regulatory. But I do wonder about then what they're missing out, right? Well, that, from the markets, and how do we get the shift? I think that's right, and I think that's there are a whole host of reasons that Congress is fo- focused on uh, yeah. 401k reform, but that's probably one of them. Um, interesting, too, and I do wonder about what are some of the investing, because because the private markets do open up a whole different universe. What are some of the more interesting or hotter or sought-after investing styles that you're finding that your clients or your investors want to be a part of? You know, it's very interesting. When our, when our clients come to us, they're not necessarily coming to us for any one thing. They're coming to us, hopefully, for a long-term relationship with their families. Mm-hmm. And so um, when we find clients coming to us, they're really thinking about, how can I help my family to be more successful over time? And, and that's a whole host of disciplines, of which investing is only one of them. Right. Investing is one of them, and it's very important, but it's only one of them. Borrowing and doing that in a prudent long-term way is important. Spending, one of those very important variables that you control yourself is very important. Managing for after-tax returns. You know, when you shift from the retirement landscape to the personal landscape, you're a taxable investor. You know, those things are very, very important, and we spend a lot of time on them. And you've advised institutions over time. Now you're dealing with a lot of individuals. What's the difference? Like, like obviously, there's a maybe a different touch, a higher touch, uh, and especially for wealthier families. But what what translate and maybe what doesn't in terms of those businesses? So there are a couple of things that are, make institutional investors um, different, and there are some practices that we can import right over into the wealth management industry. Individual investors, always, institutional investors, always know what their goal is. I'm a foundation. I have to pay out 5% and I want to beat inflation. This is my bogey and I need to make it. I have a pension plan and I got retirees and I have to pay them. You know, interestingly enough, nobody, nobody tells a family what their goal is. They have to decide for themselves. How do I feel about this wealth that I've accumulated and what is my goal for it? Is it the next generation? Is it the community? Is it a combination of things? Uh, so we, we spend a lot of time on setting goals. And then we spend a lot of time on the disciplines that help them get there. If you think about an institutional investor, mm-hmm. they have governance. Right. They have a board, an investment committee, policies in terms of asset allocation, rebalancing, all those sorts of things. We try to take Some of these those families just have mom. And mom mom decided. and dad. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we try to take those disciplines, though, because they are what has helped institutions be more successful over time. So our clients have investment policy statements. We help draft them. So it's amazing that you sit down with somebody, right? And there's just so many different issues that you're involved in. That's right. And setting a strategy. That's right. And just kind of how they're going to live their lives in so many different levels. That's right. It's fascinating. Love it. Catherine Keating, Chief Executive Officer of BNY Mellon Wealth Management. She's here with us at Bloomberg headquarters in New York City, part of the Bloomberg Invest Conference happening just upstairs from us. Always great to catch up with you. Thank you. you. Look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.